Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis about the attitude of, I have need of nothing, as compared to the life of Abraham and his many needs. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's some highlights from this week's messages. When we need to find in God mercy because we've made God angry, we've made God mad, then we call on God as God the merciful. So when we call on the name of the Lord as the forgiving God, we're saying that we believe that God wants to get rid once and for all of all of his bad feelings against us. The sad tragedy of the reality and the perception of the person is that they're in such a desperate state and they have no idea at all. Now here's Tom Cantor as we conclude our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday expository study from the book of Genesis. And so the wonderful thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he not only gives the diagnosis because, you know, so there are several tests, blood tests, which uh, have been developed, and they're excellent for cancer, the tumor marker tests. They're very, very good. They really, really do tell you when you have these particular cancer, these tests. They're real good, but they're not popular. You know why? We call them bad news tests. There's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's just like, so people don't order those tests, you know, because there's no remedy tacked on to the diagnosis. So they're very good tests, but there's no, when they get a remedy, then they'll be very positive tests. Why do the tests if there's nothing you can do, right? Well, the point here is that the Lord Jesus Christ not only says what's wrong, as those tests do, but he says how to fix it. And so here's what he says. He says, here's how to fix it. He says, me, 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 me. He says, I counsel you, I advise you, I, I want to tell you, buy of me. Gold tried in the fire, I'll give it to you. The God who gives gold. Great, great title for the Lord Jesus Christ. That thou mayest be rich, the God who makes rich. White raiment, white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Great title. Thou who clothes me in your righteousness, in your pure righteousness. He says, I, it's all me, I have it, I want to give it to you. And you're such a sad state, and all you have to do is ask. And he says, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. Now, he was speaking here to the Laodiceans of the city of Laodicea. He was speaking the language of the streets. Why? Because Laodicea was known for its eye hospitals. Laodicea was known for its garment industry. Laodicea was a rich city. So when he wants to communicate to them about spiritual things, He communicates to them about things which are on the streets of Laodicea. He says, gold, you know gold? I got gold. You know ISOV? I got ISOV. You know clothes? I got clothes. See, he's wanting to communicate these things to them. So he's bringing it down to their level, the language of the streets, so that they can understand it. And then he goes a couple verses down. He explains to them the root problem when he says, I am standing at the door of your heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he says, I'm knocking and knocking and knocking. Look how I'm knocking. I'm reducing down these spiritual truths to language of the street. I'm offering you. I want to give these things to you. He's saying, he said, I'm standing at the door and knock. And then he says, the decision is yours. If any man open the door, then I'll come in. 
Who determines who's going to open the door? The person on the inside. And that's what he says. That's your choice. That's man's choice if you will open the door. God is there, merciful, giving, but it's man's choice whether or not he invites him in. And then it says, and I will sup with them. I will sup with him. He says, I will sup with him. In other words, come in, have dinner. I'm the host. I've opened the door for the Lord. So I will sup with him. And then it says, and he with me. So then it's, <laughs> then the Lord is saying, come into the man and sit down. He takes over, see? He takes over. So in other words, when the person opens the door, it starts off, the person opens the door, and the next step is that he gives to the Lord the master position in the house. And so that's how there's that reversal. But it all comes when we need to find in God, in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he says, buy of me, to buy of me, open the door, I will come in. So that phrase that was used there in that uh, Revelation 3 passage, 17, Revelation 3, 17, where he says, you say, I have need of nothing. That's a tragic statement. That's the tragic statement. Why? Because it locks out to the person all that God wants to give to them. You show me a person who is self-sufficient. Show me a person who supplies his own needs. Show me a person who's independent and finds all that he needs in himself. I have relatives like this. It says, show me a person who says, the only helping hand I need is at the end of my arm. Show me that person, and I'll show you a person who doesn't need God, who's just not interested, who doesn't call on the name, on any name of God for anything, because he is plagued with the disease of, I have need of nothing. Now, the only person who's going to ever seek God is the person who needs him, who needs God. And God, in fact, hides himself from those who do not need him. That's what he meant when Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, Simon Barjonas, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. For He lifted up his eyes and said, I thank thee, O Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent. Who are the wise and the prudent? The people who say, I have need of nothing the people who are self-sufficient, the people who don't need God. And he says, you revealed them unto babes. What does it mean? It means God hides these things from those who do not need him and do not cry out to him. And that's what he told the Jewish people in Jeremiah 29, 13, when he said, and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. It's not, you know, you shall seek me and find me like in a casual you know, oh God, you made a beautiful day today, and by the way, no, no, that's it. He says, when, there's a qualifying on there, when you shall search for me with all of your heart. So when it says that Abraham called on the name of the Lord, it means Abraham had great needs. So Abraham had great needs, and he calls on the names of God, and I don't know what they were. He didn't tell us, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. But we got enough in here to figure out some of the needs. Abraham is, is, uh, is needy. Okay, so what are the needs that Abraham has? So what are the great needs that he's got? All right. And because if we know what the needs are, then we can figure out what names Abraham uh, used to call on God. Well, in verse 6, it says that Abraham passed through 
the land. So he passed through the land. So here we see Abram coming into this place that God told him to remove, 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 remove from country, kindred, and family's house, brother's house. And he's coming into the land. And he's looking for the right place to settle down. And what happens? We see in verse 6 that Abram comes unto a plain, a nice plain, a plain called the plain of Mori. What's, nice, what's not nice about any plain? Plains are nice. And so, but there's a problem. It says there at the end of that verse, the Canaanite was then in the land. So now you notice in verse 7 how it says that God gave him assurance. God told Abraham, it says, Abraham, he says, remember, I called you to the land. And he says, he said, I'm going to give to thy seed this land, this land. Abraham's first time God says that. For he says, I want to call you to go out to a land. And then he gets there to this plain. And God says to Abraham, ah, this is it. This is it. You got it. This, that's a very important word in that verse. This land. This land. So what does Abraham do? He builds an altar in that plain. That means God was telling him, you just arrived. You came to the right place. Unto thy seed will I give this land. So from that, it appeared that Abraham knew that he'd come to the right place. So what does he do? He settles down in the plain of Moriah. The plain's a nice place to settle down in. And when he got to that plain, God says, well, you're the right place. And Abraham says, very nice, very nice. What do you do, Esther? We hear how the word Van Eyes got its name. So there was a Jewish pioneer. That's funny in itself, but anyway. There was a Jewish pioneer, and he was with the, with the Indian Sea. So they got up on the San Fernando Hills, and they says to the Indian, he says, uh, he says no, the Indian says to the Jewish pioneer, he says, he says uh, what do you think of this land down here? And the Jewish pioneer looked at him and says, Van Eyes, Van Eyes. <laughs> okay. Anyway, this was Van Eyes, <laughs> this plain, Van Eyes. Abraham, what's not to like? Very nice place, settle down, graze your flocks, that's what you do. You graze them in, a, in the plain, God appears to him, and confirms to him it's the right place, uses the word this, unto thy sea well, will I give this land. He builds an altar. It really looks like Abraham is, oh, now, good, going to settle down. What's the next thing we find in verse 8? He removed from thence. Why are you leaving, Abraham? He removed from thence. And where does he go? To a better place? <laughs> Maybe to the seacoast? No, he goes to a mountain. A mountain. What happened to the nice place that Abraham had to settle in? What happened to the nice place for his flocks? What about the confirmation that God gave to Abraham that he was in the right place when he said, unto thy seed will I give this land? What about that nice altar that Abraham had you know, had just got finished building. Why is Abraham on the move when it says in Genesis 12, 8, and he removed from thence unto a mountain. A mountain. That's not good. A plain is much better than a mountain. It's better to graze flocks on a plain than on a mountain. I found that out firsthand the hard way in 1978 when John Dan, the box boy, at the only grocery store in Lakeside, he calls me up. He says, I got the perfect place for you to raise goats. And I'm going to sell you my house and my five goats, four goats, because we're going back to Michigan. Okay. So we bought John Dan's house, and it was on Mount El Capitan there in Lakeside, on the mountainside. And for 10 years, we struggled to raise 300 goats on a mountainside. And I learned the hard way, a mountainside is not a good place to raise goats. Goats like it, but it's not good for people. So in 1988, we moved all our goats from El Capitan Mountain, from Lakeside and Lakeside, to the plain in, in Ramona. And the only reason I let John Dan sell me his house in El Capitan to raise goats was because 
I was raised in L.A., and so I didn't, what did I know about raising goats? And so I didn't know the plains were better than the mountains. But anyway, Abraham was not dumb like me. And so when it came to raising goats, and Abraham wasn't raised in Los Angeles. So he knew the plain in Moray was better for grazing flocks than the mountain east of Bethel. So why did Abraham move from the plain of Moray to the mountain east of Bethel? It's the last sentence again in verse 6. The Canaanite was then in the land. So what we see from verses 6 through 8 is a picture of Abraham on the move. He's going through the land, he's settling in this plain, and then he's being uprooted, and then he's pitching his tent on a mountain. And because Why? Because the Canaanite was then in the land, and evidently the Canaanite didn't run out to Abraham and say, welcome, we hear God's going to give you our land. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> in fact, the Canaanite probably ran Abraham off that plain, and that's why he ends up on a mountain. And so knowing that, what names would Abraham then be calling on when he's on the mountain, when the Canaanite threatened Abraham, Abraham would call on the name of God from Psalm 59, 17, God my defense. When the Canaanite cast out Abraham off of the place where he had settled and built the altar and the sheep, the flocks liked it, Abraham would then call on the name of the Lord as in Isaiah 56, 8, the Lord, the gatherer of the outcasts. When the Canaanite was unfriendly to Abraham, Abraham would call on the name of the Lord from Isaiah 41, 8, God, Abraham's friend. And when the Canaanite made life so miserable for Abraham, Abraham would call on the name of the Lord as in Ezekiel eleven sixteen, the Lord, the little sanctuary. That's what it meant by the last statement in verse 8 when it says Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And so here we see Abraham. He doesn't stay on that mountain, and I don't blame him for moving on. We shouldn't have stayed there either. But anyway, when it says this in verse 9, Abraham journeyed going on still toward the south. And notice in verse 10, it's now it's not the Canaanite that's pushing Abraham. Now it's a famine, not just any famine, a grievous famine. And then we're going to find that the next thing that Abraham is faced with is his own fear. He's afraid. He's going to be afraid of being killed because his wife's so beautiful. And that drives Abraham. Poor Abraham. I mean, we could just feel the frustration in this man as he felt he's just being pushed along by the Canaanite, the famine, and now the Egyptian, and he can't find a place to settle. He just can't. He keeps moving. And Abraham's wandering, like it says in Hebrews eleven thirty-eight, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Till the day of his death, Abraham said in Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all, including Abraham, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And so why did God allow all these terrible things to happen to Abraham? Because God wanted to teach Abraham. Why does God allow all these terrible things to happen to us? Why did God allow me to cut my finger yesterday? And I'll have a scar there. Because I'll look at that scar and I'll say, you should call on the name of the God of peace. Not the God of the knife with the green onion. Anyway, so um, why does he allow all these things to happen? Because God wants, wanted to teach Abraham and wants to teach us his names. And that just doesn't mean knowledge of what the list of the names are, but names by experience. 
We'll never know the true meaning of God's names until we've felt the need, called on him for that name, seen him answer that, and then we'll walk away and we'll know him that way and we'll thank him for being that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being the God of Abraham and and leading him into the higher treasure of knowing you by your names. Help us, Lord, to be quick to learn and to call on your name when we have need. In Jesus' name, amen. Dad, today you talked about Revelation 3.17, where a man said that he had need of nothing. What kind of a man says, I have need of nothing? Well, David, that's a good question because that's very, very prevalent today. And the, the context within Revelation 3, 17 through 18 really describes this man who says, I have need of nothing. It says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods. So this is a man that would be described as having arrived. He's finally gotten what he really wants in life. And he sees himself as living in an overabundant state. In other words, anything he wants, he has. He's got it. He's got money. He's got wealth. He's got prestige. He's got reputation. He's got, he's got possessions. He's got, he's got it all. And he sees himself as I am rich. So it's the person who says I have need of nothing is a person who sees himself as rich and increased with goods. Therefore, he says, I have need of nothing. What's so interesting there and so important to see is it's not important how he sees himself. It's important to how God sees him. And that's the other part of the verse there where it says, knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. How could this be? How could a person say to himself by looking at himself, I'm rich, I'm increased with goods. I don't have any need of anything. That's his self-assessment, whereas God has a totally opposite view. His assessment of the person is, you are not rich. You are poor. You're wretched. You're miserable. You're blind. You're naked. But oh, thank God that there is another verse after that, Revelation 3.18, which is what God says, this is what can be done about the wretchedness, miserableness, poverty, blindness, and nakedness. There's a solution. And the solution is verse 18, where he says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. So God's goal for man is not to stand back and to say, well, now I'm glad because you had it coming, and you deserve it, and you're just wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, now I'm happy. That's not God at all. No. God says, Yes, you deserve to be that way, and you are that way, but I don't want you to be that way. And so I have done everything for you. I became a man. 
I died on a cross so I can be your eternal Yom Kippur, your eternal day of, of covering. I did everything for you. So now come, come, come and, and get the gold, true gold, not the stock market gold, but gold of my pleasure that was tried in the fire so you can really be rich. Be clothed, not with Neiman Marcus, but be clothed with white raiment, not be clothed with your sins and the shame of it, but white raiment. Be clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be covered with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And you won't be ashamed because of your nakedness. You won't be exposed. You won't be vulnerable because your sins, because I died for your sins, he would say. And then he says, and your eyes, which look at yourself, and now you say you're rich. Now you say you're increased with goods. Now you say you have need of nothing. I'll tell you what, I've got a solution for that too. The eye solve of the word of God. It'll go into your eyes. It'll clean your eyes. You'll see perfectly and you'll see, oh, I need the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll run to him and then you'll be, and he would say, then you'll be the man that's described in Jeremiah 17, 7. A blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. Why is he trusting in the Lord? Because he knows he needs the Lord. And then he says, and whose hope the Lord is. Why is the Lord his hope? Because he knows he needs the Lord as his hope. He sees his own bankruptcy. He may have a billion dollars in the bank, but still before God, he sees himself as he really is. Bankrupt, in need of God. Without God, I have nothing. He sees that. And he's blessed when he sees that because then he runs and he trusts in the Lord. He puts his hope in the Lord. And then he says in Jeremiah 17, 8, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth forth her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh. Boy, what heat are we talking about? How about the heat of hell? Shall not see when that heat cometh. No, because they're spared because God, like the mother eagle spreads out her wings, sweeps her chicks close to her, totally protects them, totally guards them, totally hides them from the awful suffering that comes for the person who's outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, who dies in their sins, who never falls down and calls and confesses him as God, as the Lord, and runs to him as their Savior. And so, and then he says, and then he, and then he says, and the leaf shall be green, shall not, and it won't be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Then he goes on to say in this same passage, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What's he talking about? He's talking exactly about what happened in Revelation 3.17. The heart's deceitful. The heart says, I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. I have need of nothing. And God says, you're so wrong because in reality, you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is what's being described. The heart is deceitful. The heart says he's rich and increased with goods and has need of nothing because the heart's deceitful, because the heart is desperately wicked. It's not just deceitful on a scale of one to 10. It tops the list. It's deceitful above all things. It's 10 plus deceitful and desperately wicked. In other words, it's deceitful in misleading. It's deceitful in misguiding. It's deceitful to take you over the cliff. That's what it, it's not just deceitful in a neutral way. It's deceitful in a wicked way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So what's the solution? The next verse, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give to every man according to his ways. In other words, God says, I know the heart. 
I know how who you really are. Trust me. Trust me that when I say in Revelation 3, 17, that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, trust me, you are. Don't go to the church of self-realization. You had enough with the self-realization already. Now you need the God-realization. And when you got the God-realization, then you realize the self-realization is a bad realization, and what I need is God. And therefore, that will be the beginning of doing what it says in Isaiah 64, 7, stirring up himself to take hold of God, calling on the name of the Lord. What name? Lord Jesus, God, Jesus, save me from my sins. Be my Savior now. Be my Savior throughout life to save me from the greatest disaster, myself. Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord. Oh, to be found in thee. The greatest enemy we have is the deceiver that works inside our hearts that says, you're a good person. You're an honest person. You're not so bad. You've got it all. You've got yourself. You don't need God. That's the greatest disaster that we have inside of us. That's ourself. And so when we realize that ourself is misleading us, then we call, then we come, then we're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today. Now this month, Tom Cantor's offering his latest book called Whosoever Will versus Fatalism. Now this book will help you to scripturally answer the questions, what is fatalistic Calvinism? And who can resist God's will? And who are the chosen and changed children? Did God predestinate people to die and go to hell? This book will show us all that we're faced with the personal crisis of obedience, just as Joseph and Eve both faced personal crises of obedience. Now, this book examines the character of God and His promises and compares them to the teachings of fatalistic Calvinism and provokes us with the question, what if God misled? If you'd like a copy of Tom Cantor's new book, Whosoever Will, versus Fatalism, call us today, 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org.